0: Do you have a favorite Christmas time food? Is there some kind of food this season that just really makes you excited? Maybe it's the Christmas turkey, or or maybe it's the sweets, it's the Christmas cookies, the gingerbread cookies, the Christmas fudge. Or maybe there's a Christmas time drink that you really look forward to. Maybe it's eggnog or hot chocolate. You know, there is something about Christmas time, isn't there, that we just have these foods that maybe we only have about once a year that we really look forward to and get excited about. We've been in this series, Christmas Together, and we've talked about the celebrations of Christmas and the music and the singing of the Christmas season. And the primary question that we've been asking is, where is Christmas going? Not so much when is Christmas coming, but where is Christmas going? And would it surprise you to know that Christmas is going to a place where there's food, where there's feasting together? I want you to see that this morning as we continue through the book of Revelation. This morning we'll be in Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19 verses 6 through 16, John writes, It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus, worship God for the testimony of jesus is the spirit of prophecy then i saw heaven opened and behold a white horse the one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes wars his eyes like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself he is clothed in a robe dripped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of god and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen white and pure were following him on white horses From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of fury of the wrath of the Lord God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In chapter 19, the book of Revelation really begins its climax and we see just the whole climactic ending that the world has been waiting for. Now to get there, you you gotta remember the background to this book, okay? There's John and John's older and he's really just got Rome uh, upset. And so Rome, they don't know quite what to do with him. They end up exiling him off to be forgotten about on the island of Patmos. John, he was the last living disciple. He was the pastor of the church of Ephesus and the bishop of the churches around Ephesus. And so he had this degree of influence. Well, Romans, they they wanted that influence gone, but they didn't want to make a martyr out of him. So they sent him to this tiny piece of rock just to live out his final days in obscurity. They never thought that he'd be able to get a letter out. And John tells us, that he was worshiping on that little piece of rock. We don't even know if he was worshiping with anybody or was all by himself, but it was the Lord's day. He was worshiping. And then his worship begins to take on this new dimension. The Lord kind of catches him up in his spirit, and God begins to show John what must happen. And so John, as he's seeing this, he sees how worthy God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit is to be worshiped, is to be praised. And so he begins writing letters to the seven churches in and around Ephesus, just reminding them of how God is to be worshiped. And and telling them of the things that they've forgotten, course corrections they need to make in order to worship God well. And then from there, John, he's ushered into the throne room of heaven, and he sees that it's God on the throne, it's not Caesar, it's God. And then he sees the Lamb of God, Jesus, standing as though he's been slain, but he is the one worthy to take the scroll, to break the seals, to open it, to unleash God's ideal future for humanity, everything that that he wants it to be. Jesus can make it happen. And so, yeah, there's seven seals on this scroll and he opens them and he breaks them. And so from there, you see the breaking of those seals and the seven bowls. And all these are, are the judgments that God is bringing upon creation. It's the judgment that Jesus enacts in order to rightly and justly judge creation for their sin and then to redeem it and reclaim it finally to be rid of it once and for all and so after you work your way through that you get to revelation chapter 19 where we begin this climactic ending and what does john see now after you go through all this judgment and what happens in order for god to rightly reclaim creation you get a wedding i mean can you imagine of all things a wedding why a wedding well, I want to walk through that with you this morning. You know, there's a little children's rhyme that we like to sing, isn't there? It says, uh, first comes love, then comes marriage, then comes the baby in the baby carriage. That's not a bad progression of events for our culture. It'd be good if it worked out that way most of the time. But that's not how it was for a Jewish couple. Do you understand that? A young Jewish couple, this would not be the normal progression of things. For them, it would be first comes marriage, then comes love. First comes the I do, and then comes the I love you. Why? Because Jewish marriages were arranged by their parents. Uh, the parents decided who their child would marry and as a dad you know I don't think that's such a bad idea but in the arrangement this this arrangement time once that's been made this is called the marriage betrothal period and it's during this period that both sets of parents will get together and they will negotiate the marriage betrothal contract and there would be witnesses there watching all of this it was a legally binding contract and so during during that betrothal period while the marriage ceremony hasn't yet happened while the couple is not yet together living together or anything like that they're still considered husband and wife in fact if the husband were to die during this time the woman she was considered a widow and these two young people during this time they were supposed to be faithful to each other but still waiting to physically consummate the marriage. This, uh, this waiting period usually lasted up to a year. It could be even longer, though. There was no set time that it had to be this long, but it was a time of joyful anticipation and a time of preparation, getting the house ready, getting everything ready for this upcoming marriage that would be. You know, that's why it would have been so devastating for Joseph. To hear the news that his betrothed Mary was pregnant I mean how could he possibly respond to this it would be devastating it's why he wanted to divorce her quietly but still being a righteous man he wanted it to be quiet he didn't want any added shame on Mary but do you understand just the devastation of his heart because this was a time of joyful anticipation, of preparation, of of waiting. You can understand why it almost took an angel to tell Joseph, hey, this really is of the Lord. Yeah, that's what that would have been like. Now, understand we, the church, we are the bride of Christ. We are the ones who are betrothed to Jesus. And so we wait in joyful anticipation. And at the same time, pure devotion to Jesus for when that betrothal uh, period comes to an end and then the wedding ceremony can take place. You know, another aspect of the marriage betrothal period, it was the dowry. You understand that the, this was the price that the groom must pay the parents of the bride. In Jewish culture, women, they were very instrumental to the running of a household. I mean, they managed everything from crops to cattle. And so because of their productivity, the loss of one of the women in the home, it it could be devastating for just a family's economic well-being. And so the groom, well, he had to pay a price to help uh, uh, compensate for that loss. And this price, it was a dowry. And as a dad of two daughters, you know, I think that's a pretty good idea, too. In the wedding scene, Jesus, he's referred to as the lamb. Did you catch that during this time? He's referred to as the lamb. Now, later in Revelation 19, he is called the king of kings and lord of lords. But at the wedding, he's the lamb that's a title that usually depicts and refers to the sufferings of Jesus and the death of Jesus why the title of a lamb at this glorious wedding because it was the dowry that he paid it was the price that he had to pay for his bride the church and so he paid that for you and me he'd had to die for you and me so that we could be in that relationship with him After the betrothal period was over, the groom, he would send a message that he was on his way to the bride's home to collect his bride. It would be a time of just excitement as the groom made his way to get her and so what happens next once he gets her and everything is the time known as the presentation it's the wedding presentation and at this stage the groom he does he comes and he gets his bride and they walk together back to his parents house his father's home this was a It was a brief time of festivities before the actual ceremony took place. And depending upon the wealth of the groom, these festivities could last up to a week as the groom just presented his bride to all of his family and friends. And they greeted her and they welcomed her into the family. And it was just a time of excitement, a time of celebration. And so in the imagery of this ancient wedding, the rapture, it marks that time when the groom Jesus Christ takes his bride the church back to the father to present her in all to all of heaven and to show off just the church in heaven this is what's happening during these 7 years that's how long this presentation lasts now maybe that seems like a long time i mean a 7 year presentation that's a long time to show somebody off but remember the betrothal period, it's already been lasting for 2,000 years or more. So he comes for us. Jesus comes for us, his church, and he takes us to his father's house. And just wait, he says, till we get to see the place that he's gone and prepared for us. It's incredible. See, the presentation is the church being presented in heaven. After the presentation the third stage of the wedding is now ready to begin and that's the ceremony as the ceremony commences the wedding attire like most weddings is extraordinary it's magnificent the groom he's dressed as a king the ancient Jewish custom at this time was for the groom to be dressed in really almost as much fine garments as he could possibly wear. Uh, this, they would literally uh, just dress up as a king and a queen. They would borrow jewelry, they would borrow the best finest clothing so they could play the part as best they could as part of king and queen during this ceremony. It was traditional during that day, um, during the days of Jesus, for the groom to wear a gold crown. And in Jewish tradition, the groom, he would also have his garments perfumed with frankincense and myrrh. You know, oftentimes we think of these gifts that the wise men would bring, that child Jesus, these gifts of gold, of frankincense, and of myrrh, and we think of them as almost death spices and and that they kind of foreshadow his impending death because these fragrances, yeah, they were often used at a burial. They were. However, these three items, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, They were also used by a a Jewish groom who was receiving his bride. So even in the gifts of the wise men during Jesus' childhood, these gifts spoke about his death, yes, but also about his future delight in collecting his bride. John, he also reveals for us the attire of the bride. John says the church is wearing fine linen this is expensive cloth the the bridal dress is referred to as bright and shining there's this brilliance this glow this radiance of the attire that the church is wearing and the garment is clean it's 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 pure there's this purity of the bride see our righteous purity is is given to us because God credits the works of Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus to our account so that we can be presented pure and spotless, radiant in our attire. A Jewish wedding, much like a Western wedding, it involved a whole lot of vows and prayers and exchange of rings. And in Revelation 2, 17, Jesus promised that he would give us Uh, uh, faithful believers he would give us a new name Uh, that there would be this precious gem and this new name would be written on it and just as the conclusion of, of any wedding today, right, when I got married to Steph at the end of the wedding, she's no longer Stephanie Gualey, she's Stephanie Grimmie. She takes on my name. Jesus says that we all get to take on his name, That he gives us this new name that lasts for all eternity. Oh, it's the climax of the ceremony. At the ceremony, Jesus gives us a new name. You know, it's fascinating, isn't it? the progression of scripture how it reflects just the romance and the ritual of a jewish wedding especially during the days of jesus now as the vows have been said the bride has received her new name we then head into the final stage of the wedding and it's the feast i mean You know, you just had this great wedding, this grand wedding. There's got to be some feasting. You've got to add the food to the celebration. And this is the grandest of all wedding ceremonies. If any wedding that's ever take place, this is the best. And so it concludes with the grandest feast possible. There's enough food, enough wine for everyone. The feast will last 1,000 years and it will culminate with the new heaven and the new earth. And there's wedding guests there. You say, well, who's the wedding guests? I mean, the church is there, God is there. Who are the wedding guests? <laughs> well, those were all the believers of Old Testament times and they're the, the uh, tribulational saints. Those are the wedding guests who are there to see this. And in a typical Jewish wedding, as the feast is about to begin, the bride and the groom, they they drink from a cup. And it symbolizes just this period of rejoicing and this time of celebration for this new marriage. You know, Jesus, he made a promise to his disciples as he was initiating and instituting uh, communion, and he told them that he would not drink from the fruit of the vine again, until he drank it with us in the kingdom. And so when this wedding feast commences, and Jesus, he lifts lifts this new wine to his lips, as he's doing that, he's fulfilling the promise that he made to his disciples so long ago. See, the wedding feast, at the wedding feast, Jesus fulfills his promise we're in the kingdom, just how he said, this, his death did secure for us everything he said it would. And so now there's this celebration. You know, we've traveled through the Jewish wedding, the progression of it, the different steps and phases of the ceremony and, and what it all pictures. But you know, we're kind of jumping ahead of ourselves a little bit because when we look at John's words, John, he's essentially one of the wedding guests. He sees what's happening, but the feast has not yet taken place. It's just about to take place. He knows the feasting is about to begin, but he's not watching the feast yet. We haven't read that in Revelation 19. Why? Because Jesus hasn't entered yet. He hasn't come in. See, as, G- as John hears everything that's going to happen, John, he, this angel, he's seeing it, and the angel's there, and he's telling him. And John, he falls down, and he begins to worship the angel because he said, oh, this news is so great. This is so incredible. Jesus really is going to secure for us our, our eternity. It's going to be unleashed. Everything is going to be great. It's a time of celebration. And so John, he, just hearing the news, he begins to worship the messenger. And the angel looks at him and says, Get up, man. You can't be worshiping me. Come on, worship is for God and God alone. You only worship Jesus. Why? Because he's the only one worthy. After all of the judgment, after all of the pain of the tribulation, at long last, Jesus then does make his dramatic entry. Heaven is open. John sees this. And here comes Jesus on this white horse, and his eyes like fire. His, his head is like diadems. His robe is dripped in blood. And on his robe and on his thigh is the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So you understand, right before this feast, there's a battle there's a battle to take place it's the battle of Armageddon a lot of major battles happened in that valley we could go through it we could talk about all the all the all the battles that took place in the valley of Megiddo the valley of Armageddon it because the the way it's shaped it literally like funnels the armies into this valley and so the valley of Armageddon this final great battle that's what we think, isn't it? You know, all the armies of the world are here. They've all come to stand up against God. And they're gathered by the beast and the false prophet. And they're all there to oppose God. <laughs> you know, it's not the first time that all the armies of the world gathered together. You remember back in Babel when they, when they gathered together and they say, you know what, we're going to build a tower to reach all the way up to heaven to reach God himself, whether he likes it or not. And they begin building these things. And they think, hey, God, there's nothing you can do about it. We're doing this. We're building this thing. There's nothing you can do about it. They're not going to wait for God to come to them. They're going to him. And they don't think there's anything God can do. Remember how that turned out? (laughs) It turned out in just a bunch of scattering and confusion and all the languages and everything else. You know, but there'd be many after that, wouldn't there? There's Pharaoh, and Pharaoh, he had the audacity to enslave God's people and tell God, hey, there's nothing you can do about it either, that I've got this, I'll do what I please. Yeah, it actually happens all the time, doesn't it? When people stand up against God, whether in word or deed, thinking, I'm in control. I can live life how I want. I can do what I want. I can make the choices that, that I want. It doesn't matter what God says. And so with their maybe not always with their words but often with their lives they proclaim that God is not God and he cannot tell them what to do that he will not be in control that that they're not going to listen to what he has to say that they will not obey oh but this <laughs> in revelation 19 here oh this is the last time this is the last time that will ever happen the battle of armageddon now most people we have in our minds it's like incredible final battle and it's incredible it's gonna be this colossal war and everybody's gone and you know hey we we gotta be there and we gotta go through boot camp we gotta get our training we're in the lord's army after all we gotta we gotta fight the battle with jesus and as he's carrying this out and you know we're gonna be there right there by his side helping him secure the victory (laughs) sometimes that's how we think of this battle You gotta read the text. You gotta read the text, okay? Do you remember how we're dressed? We're in fine linen. Now, listen, I don't know a whole lot about battle, but I know this you don't wear fine linen to a battle. Now, if you're going to a battle, you put on anything you can that's going to help protect you. You put on a helmet. You put on a, a breastplate in those days, a bulletproof vest today. You're, you're putting on the right boots. You're putting on a belt. You're, you got your pants on, whatever. You, you make sure that you can get anything on you that's going to help protect you. You don't come wearing white, fine linen. You see, we're not there to fight. We're not there to fight. Why are we there? We're there to get married. We're there for the marriage feast. We're there to worship the groom. God says, I don't need you to fight. I don't need you to fight. That's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for your worship. See, he's gathered us for a wedding. He's gathered us to worship. (laughs) And then there's verse 20. We didn't read it, but you go and you look at verse 20. And for some, this is like kind of a disappointing verse because it says, and the beast was captured. That's the whole battle right there. The whole battle of Armageddon, the beast was captured. The false prophet too and all the armies, God takes them out, throws them into the lake of fire. I mean, you can't really make a movie out of that, you know? I mean, nobody's going to go see that movie. I mean, you get this picture, hey, the beast is coming to confront Jesus and all the armies, they're all there. and They pledge their loyalty to the beast and he's standing right there and they're thinking, oh man, we have a chance. They're all ready to do battle, and then Jesus shows up, captures the beast, it's over. There's no like blowing things up, there's no like fire raining down. There's no, no, I'm not going to see this movie. There's, this is not enough to make a movie of. Jesus just speaks, and boom, it's done. The battle is over. Jesus, who conquered death, now conquers the beast. And what do his followers do? We're there to worship. We're there for the feasting. We're there for the marriage feast, for the 1,000 years just to enjoy. It's a time of celebration. It's a time of singing. It's a time of feasting together. Because Jesus won, he's unleashed humanity's future just as God always intended for it to be. See this? This is that little baby born in that small town in a tiny, dirty cave. This is the savior of dirty people, redeemed. He's redeemed us to wear robes of white, robes of fine linen. So this Christmas, as you sit around the table with your family and friends and you feast on all your favorite foods, that that food that you were just looking forward to this year, be reminded that that feasting It looks forward to a great feast, a feast that will last 1,000 years, this marriage feast where we will worship King Jesus because the scrolls will have been opened. Humanity will have her future back. The beast will be captured. Jesus will fulfill his promises. You understand, that's where Christmas is going. Heavenly Father, We thank you that you are a God who fulfills your promises. And because of that, there is going to be a feast where we celebrate for a thousand years just the goodness of who you are. And then at the culmination of that feast, you will unveil a new heaven and a new earth that will be incredible throughout the rest of eternity. But God, now we are in that joyful stage of anticipation and preparation. So may we anticipate and prepare well. We need your help to do that. So we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.